0: I'll invite us to uh, open our Bibles to Exodus 20 and read verses 1 through 6. This is God's word for us today. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. Good morning.
1: Good morning. <laughs> if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Nick Walk. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. Specifically, I'm the youth and college pastor. And if you're new here, you're catching us in the latter half of our Sunday morning teaching series the authority and sufficiency of scripture we had begun this series several weeks ago setting the foundation of what this means and now we've moved on to what it looks like practically in our everyday life last week pastor bill he shared what does this truth look like in our households in our at our homes and in doing so he taught us that the practical living out of the truth it is in the microcosm of the house right the house is a microcosm or we would say the household it is a building block of the church and therefore what we do at church it should be reflected in how we do how we live in our houses and vice versa and if you haven't had the chance to listen to that sermon i'd encourage you to listen to it not only because it was encouraging and convicting but because that message and this message, they must go hand in hand. In other words, how we live throughout the week, especially at home, it impacts how we live together on Sunday morning as the household of God. But there's two important questions that arise from this. First, how can we be sure that our church life and home life are so intimately intertwined? And secondly, If there truly is an intimate relationship between the two, how do we pursue it? Very simply, what is this truth? How do we pursue this truth? For the answer to the first question, I'll just direct your attention to the Westminster Larger larger Catechism, particularly question one, right? The question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? The answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. And I begin with this catechism, not because catechisms are the source of truth, but because they're a helpful summary of the truth. Every catechism, right, a pair of answer and question, they are supplemented with what we would call proof text. Basically, where in Scripture do we turn to in order to see this answer? If you struggle with certain foundational questions of Christianity, the catechisms, the confession of faith, it's helpful. They're helpful resources to navigate and understand the Bible. For example, right, if you we were to use Westminster Larger Catechism Question 1, right, again, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God. What does the Bible actually teach us about this truth? Where do we turn? And we see several proof texts, such as Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen in other words we see that god he is at the center and deserving of all glory if we turn to the next one first corinthians ten thirty one. so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god in every, in other words in everything that we do we're called to glorify god what about psalm 86 9 All nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. What do we see? We see that no matter where you are, where you're from, all of us are called to glorify God. And finally, Psalm 86, 12. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. In other words, we must glorify God with our entire being for all your present life and the life after an eternity. Now, if we put this all together very simply, we call this worship. No matter whoever, wherever, whatever, and whenever, we were created to worship God. And this is neither a weekend hobby nor a split identity. We don't come to worship on Sunday wearing a different mask, putting on our worship hats. Rather. We come to worship on Sunday as an extension of our worship-filled weeks. This is a truth we need to be reminded of over and over again, whether you're a new Christian, a young Christian or a mature Christian. God calls you to worship this morning, not your Sunday self. God calls you. Therefore, as I touch upon the topic of truth and worship, We begin by remembering that worship, it doesn't start Sunday morning, nor does it end Sunday afternoon. Sunday worship is a special time of worship in the midst of our life of worship. And so how do we pursue worship as a lifestyle and not a particular day? Well, we once again turn to the source of truth, to God's word. Specifically, it's our passage, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. And as an interesting note, we see that God, he finds the topic of his worship so important. He won't just tell Moses and then have Moses relay it to his people. God speaks to all his people directly. And so what does God teach us about his worship? Well, we see three main principles of worship. And these will serve as our three headings for this morning. First, in verse 3, we see the priority of worship. That is, how do we approach God in our worship? Second, in verses 4 to 5, we see the practice of worship. That is, how do we engage God in our worship? And finally, in verse 6 and verses 1 through 2, we see the privilege of worship. How do we deserve God in our worship? So then once again, in our pursuit of a worshiping lifestyle, we'll navigate these three principles of worship. The priority, the practice, and the privilege of worship. And so let me turn us to our first principle, the priority of worship in verse 3. God states, you shall have no other gods before me. We see that we begin our pursuit of a worship lifestyle with the first commandment. And it's one that can be easily misunderstood or abused. We see that the improper understanding verse 3, it would Misconstrue the latter half, no other gods before me. One might be tempted to ask, are there other gods besides our God? Or one might be tempted to think, God merely cares about the hierarchy or ordering of our worship. The first problem I'm not gonna belabor since there's plenty of passages that explicitly state this is incorrect. Right? Just to name a few that you can reference, turn to Deuteronomy 4:35. Isaiah 43, 10, Isaiah 45, verses 5, 18, 22, Isaiah 46, 9, John 17, 3, 1 Timothy 2, 5, Jude 25, again, the list could go on and on. If I were to just elaborate one particular example, Paul addresses this issue when he discusses food that's offered to idols or other gods in 1 Corinthians 10, and his answer It's very straightforward. We see in verses 19 to 20, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I simply imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to gods. I do not want you to be participants with demons. We see that the issue here is not that God is threatened by other gods, but there are demons deceiving people. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of life. You see, the purpose, it's not to attract your allegiance, but it's to protect you from being deceived by snake oil sales demons. But now it's the latter issue that we need to address more carefully. Does God simply care that you have your priorities in life But simply place him at the top of that list. That God is just the first of many priorities of life. Well, of course not. Worship, it's not like fantasy drafts. You don't have your first round pick, and then there are your other picks that you'll settle with. After all, the priority of worship, it's not distinguishing between prioritizing God amongst all other priorities rather the priority of worship it's prioritizing god above all other priorities in other words we see that god he must be in a different category altogether and why is this so important well on the one hand it's because god he has created us to worship him we see this in revelation 411 worthy are you o, our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. We see that the creator, he deserves the worship of his creation. Therefore, Psalm 66, 4 states, All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. And not only that, we're creatures of worship. If we don't worship God, we'll want to worship something or someone else. We see this in Romans one twenty-one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Right? They did not worship him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what did they do? Verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and this doesn't just happen on the grand scale of believer and unbeliever of christian and non-christian it happens in the moment to moment postures of our life in other words the danger of putting god merely first amongst all the other priorities is that this division it diminishes depending on what your life circumstances are that is depending on what you're doing at the current moment or the immediate issues at hand, your priorities easily begin to shift amongst one another. For example, you may have come to worship on Sunday morning, but because of an argument before church or in the car, or perhaps an assignment or an issue that you have to accomplish afterwards, that you have to finish this week, you've not really come to worship. Yes. The priority is that you came to worship. But what actually occupies your attention, your mind, your hearts may be all these other priorities in life right now. This is not to say that these things are irrelevant, unnecessary, but that even good things can become distractions when we don't properly order our lives. Again, it's not that the need to work out your arguments and the resulting feelings are not important. It's not that the demands of life can be carelessly brushed aside. However, God knows that the most important thing for you right now, it's not those things. It's himself. As he reveals himself to you, he softens hearts, hears hurts, and he reorients your life, His purpose. And so how do we test ourselves to see whether we have prioritized God either above or amongst our other priorities? Well, one test is to see what your life revolves around. If you turn your life into what we call a pie chart, right, what is your primary focus and devotion? What takes up the largest chunks? Where do you spend the most amount of time After all, quantity, it can give us an insight into our hearts. But let me give you a more important test, a test of quality. Ask yourself this simple question. What is my posture towards Sunday worship? And I promise you, when you ask yourself, what is my posture when I come to worship God on Sunday, it is an uncomfortable question to wrestle with. But how you treat Sunday worship, it will give you a genuine insight on how important worshiping God throughout your week is, throughout the rest of your life is. It may not be an infallible example, nor one that doesn't have its exceptions. However, when we consider the ordinary circumstances of life, this becomes a very helpful test. Ask yourself whether it's important to arrive to Sunday worship on time or perhaps even earlier, to fellowship, to serve your brothers and sisters. Whether it's important to participate in the entirety of the worship liturgy, to receive and respond from the call to worship to the closing benediction. Whether it is important to you to allow the worship service to overflow into your conversations and activities after service, throughout your week. Again, our approach to Sunday worship, it reveals more than we'd care to ask. If you want to see this question in action, just look at the early church in the book of Acts. Perhaps the end of Acts 2, as we see the habits of the church community. Just look throughout the New Testament letters. You'll see it in action. Again, perhaps as we worship, as we wrestle with the priority of worship, we forget too often that we don't live double lives. Sunday worship, it flows into our everyday worship, and our everyday worship it flows into our Sunday worship. After all, we see in Romans 12:1, right? Paul says, "I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship." He doesn't limit it to a time worship is not limited to Sunday, nor is worship limited to a location. We saw this in John chapter 4, 23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. But now, what does that all mean practically? Let me just point out two things. First, it means that you should expect to encounter God in a unique way on Sunday morning as God promises to meet and to bless his people. Right? We should expect that Sunday worship, it is special. It's when God promises to meet and bless his people. This is why Sunday worship, it entails a benediction, a good word of blessing. We don't just end our Sunday worship with empty words. Again, the source of the benediction, though it's spoken by an ordained minister, the source, it's not the speaker. All benedictions, they find their source, authority, and power in the promises of God. Therefore, come to worship on Sunday with the knowledge you have a right to God's blessings. Come to worship on Sunday knowing you have a right to all the promises of God according to those very blessings and promises. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. They find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But don't let it end there. Not only find those blessings, but we see, therefore, Colossians 1.29, now toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within you. Not only does God bless you on Sunday worship, not only does he meet you, he energizes you for the week ahead. Second, We see, practically, it means you should prepare to encounter this God on Sunday morning. This is what we call the Sabbath principle in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. That is, set Sunday worship, the Lord's day, as a separate or something apart from the ordinary humdrums of everyday life. But how do you do this? It's the very next verse, Exodus 20, verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. What we see practically is that Sunday worship, it doesn't just energize you for the week ahead. It's what you're preparing for each and every week. Sunday worship isn't something we just stumble into. It's what we've been ordering our entire week around. Six days of responsibility or preparation to enjoy, to experience the seventh. This is why testing your posture of Sunday worship, it is revealing of your worship lifestyle and habits. And so having established the priority of worship, we can turn to our second principle. What is the practice of worship that we see in verses 4 to 5? Starting in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any lightness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. As we transition from the first commandment to the second, we transition now from the question of who. To how. That is, what does worship look like? Or what is proper in worship? This is where I get to share a helpful summary, a summary theological term. It's called the regulative principle. And although the concept of the regulative principle, it it can be dense and helpful, and it is helpful navigating that denseness. Very simply, what is the regulative principle? It can be compacted into two statements. First, what we do in worship, it must be explicit in Scripture. And second, what we do in worship must be a good and necessary consequence of Scripture. To put that another way, either the Bible literally says to do this, or the Bible teaches to do something as a principle from wrestling with a particular passage. In order to help illustrate that, let, let me just give an example of how this is important using both statements. First, according to the regular principle, something must be explicit in Scripture. For example, preaching the Bible during worship. Where do we see this? We see this in 2 Timothy 4 too. Preach the word. Be ready in, in and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why do we have sermons on Sunday morning? Because preaching, it, it is an imperative of Scripture. Scripture tells us to do it very explicitly. And usually people don't have a problem with this statement. So let me move on to the second statement. Is it a good and necessary consequence of Scripture? And perhaps it will be more helpful to use a bad example to show why it's so important. Right, let me use the example of Acts 27. But on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, there's some key words here. This is taking place on the first day of the week. It's a gathering time to break bread, and Paul talked with them. In fact, Paul prolonged his speech until midnight. We see that the timing, it's correct. It's the first day of the week. This is clearly talking about Sunday. We see that the setting is correct. It's when they gather together to break bread. Whether it's talking about a physical meal or the Lord's Supper, they've gathered together on Sunday. And finally, we see that activity is correct as well. Paul talked with them, and he prolonged his speech. Ultimately, Paul, he's delivering a message. Everything seems to check out. Nothing seems to be out of ordinary for Sunday worship. Therefore, my conclusion is that I should be allowed to preach until midnight, just like Paul. You see, the mistake is that it's good to hear the word preached, to fill your day listening to God's word. Although from the looks of some of you, that may not be the case. But bear with me for the sake of argument, right? The question that's more important is, is this necessary? And the answer is no. We don't see this anywhere else in Scripture, nor does the conclusion of this passage warn a long message. We see that this poor young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, he fell asleep, fell out the window, and he died because the message was too long. You see, this is why the regular principle is so important. Otherwise, worship is governed by the preferences of man and not the principles of the Word of God. And so then turning now to our actual passage, verses 4 to 5, we can apply the same principle and truth. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Apply statement 1. Right? What are the explicits? Don't carve an image of anything in all of creation. In other words, when it comes to worship, don't make physical idols. But now we apply statement two. Is there more to this principle than this explicit statement? Well, we see that there is more. It's more than just a hand and head issue. This is a heart issue. On the one hand, right? You, you've ultimately flipped the order you've placed the creation above the creator. On the other hand, you've also limited, you've diminished the grandness of the creator. After all, God is infinite. And yet when you make an idol, you're condensing God into a finite object. Therefore, what we see is that the essence of verse 4 is that God, he does care about his identity, his image, and that we are not to change it as we please. And this sounds obvious, but we do this so easily and so often. Have you ever limited God to just one of his attributes? To just emphasize one of his attributes more or only than the others? Right? We can take love, for example. That you've overemphasized his love. That it makes our God uncaring about justice you can do that with justice as well right it becomes such a priority you trample over people and arguments for the sake of doing this or that or for the sake of efficiency we see how the proper portrayal of God it becomes a good and necessary consequence of our worship in verse four but what about verse five you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Again, explicitly, don't bow, don't serve. Principally, we see that God, he doesn't limit this to putting objects on a pedestal and literally bowing to them or offering things to them or polishing them, making sure that they're pretty and clean. The essence of verse 5 is that we are not to worship things in the creation like the creator. That is God. He strongly cares about his relationship with his people and the worship that they have of him. And we've all done this in some way, shape, or form. We've cheated on our relationship with God. Perhaps even worse, we've cheated on God and convinced ourselves that it was actually for him instead. The immediate example of disobeying verses 4 or 5 while convincing themselves otherwise. We see it in the golden calf incident. And it's only 12 chapters later. Exodus 32. Basically, what happened is that the people, they're tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. So they ask Aaron, make us new gods. But the heartbreaking part is that it's worse when we actually look at the original language. We see that they ask Aaron in verse 1, make us Elohim, literally God, who shall go before us. Verse 4, Aaron accepts. And after making the golden calf, he responds, Ele Eloheka. This is Elohim. This is God, O Israel, who brought you out up from the land of Egypt. You see, the English translation, it it, it translates both of these verses in the plural form of God. But notice that Aaron presents them a singular golden calf. Not only this, after the Israelites, they hear God speak to them. They've already responded in Exodus 2019. At the end of our own passage, talking to Moses, they say, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let Elohim, speak to us lest we die. They've already acknowledged this is Elohim. This is God. And within 12 chapters, they say, Give me Elohim, but in a way we want him to be. It's the same word they use when referring to God. In other words, although they believed what God said in the first commandment, they tried to worship the same God who saved them from Egypt but they tweaked him according to the second commandment. They were less concerned with how they worshiped God. And we may want to call them immediate fools to think we wouldn't fall into the same trap. However, could it be that you and I, we've been worshiping God, and yet a version of God that we prefer has worshiping God become a checklist for you? Right, you tell yourself, as long as I hear a message on Sunday or hear the Bible preached once a week, God is gracious and he will overlook all the other things I did in this week and what I will do in the next. Ultimately, what you're worshiping is legalism. It's a type of moralism and not God. Or has worshiping God become a shield for you? as long as I'm able to convince others through my habits in worship, no one will be suspicious of my private sinful life. What you're worshiping is a God who is merely a tool, an instrument for your convenience, not God himself. Or has worshiping God become a sort of negotiation? As long as I come and worship, God will make my life comfortable. He will make me successful. He will do this or that for me. That if I worship him, I will get X, Y, or Z. What we're worshiping is a genie and not God. Again, how you worship God, it is important because we teach others about him and how to worship him through our own worship. Don't forget that the Lord your God, he is a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Present and sisters, don't be someone who trains others how to hate God by worshiping your own version of him. Don't live as someone who hates God, but has convinced yourself otherwise, despite participating in his visible community. And thankfully, there's more to our passage. We don't have to end it here. We turn now to see the means. How do we combat this practically? We see this in our final principle, the privilege of worship in verse 6 and verses 1 through 2, starting in verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Returning back to verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When we start with verse 6, although initially it sounds better than verse 5, after all, we'd we'd like to hear, we'd prefer to hear God showing love rather than visiting iniquity. However, notice verse 6. It doesn't technically leave us any better off god shows steadfast love to thousands of those who do what love him and keep his commandments our natural instinct is to read this and respond with worry after all the israelites the people of god they literally heard the voice of god they literally saw the mighty works of his hands. They literally experienced his wonderful provisions through the desert. And they've literally enjoyed his blessings and forgiveness for their frequent disobedient outcries. In other words, they were privy to an intimate relationship with their God who revealed not only his head, and, but his heart and hand to them over and over and over again. And yet what happens? The people of God, they reject him in favor of their own version of him time and time again as they worship the golden calf. But they called it by his identity, Elohim, God. What happens next? God's anger, it burned against his adulterous people. The very thing we saw declared in verse 5. But now what stops God? What actually prevents God from pouring out his wrath On the one hand, we have to say it's a mediator like Moses who intercedes for his people. But there's more. Look at what Moses says to God in Exodus 34, 11-13. Moses, he implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Why? How? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring, as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. What we see then is that ultimately what stopped God wasn't what actually what Moses did, but what Moses said. Ultimately, what Moses said, he, he just repeated God's own words and promises back to him. In other words, it's God's word. His own words that stop him. This is the heart of verse 6 in our passage. You see, God, he doesn't just show steadfast love to those who love and obey him. The power of God's steadfast love, it transforms wicked sinners into saints who are now being taught how to love and how to obey him. Like God, he doesn't simply call people because he foresaw sometime in the future that they would ultimately choose to love and obey him. No, God calls a people that he knows would be wicked and terrible apart from himself. And yet because God is confident, because God is faithful to transform them, God is able to call them in as his people. And how does he do that? Well, that's verses 1 to 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? God is able to do this because God speaks and God acts. Does that sound familiar? That's again the essence of verse six. God speaks, otherwise, they had no commandments to obey. God acts, otherwise, they had no God to love in return or response. We see that it's because God spoke. That they could hear and learn to obey. It's because God acts that they could experience His love and learn to love Him in return. And so, what is it that God shares with us and what has He done for us? Well, again, verses one through two, God speaks of His mighty work of salvation. Notice that before we even get into the commandments, Right, we would call these the imperatives of our salvation. God has first established the indicatives of our salvation. We are a people who have been brought out of Egypt. It is out of this world's restraints. And we are a people who have been brought out of the house of slavery. It's out of the chains of sin. And how does God do that? Well, it's because God sent his only son into this world. And that God chained his only son upon the cross with the weight of those very sins. Because Jesus willingly went to Egypt, endured the curse and miseries of our sin, and yet he perfectly and perpetually loved God and obeyed him. God's steadfast love, it passed over him so that it could pass on to us. We see that as Jesus, he bore the iniquity of those before, during, and after him. And because he did so, it was possible for God to show his steadfast love to us. As if we obeyed, as if we loved God from the very beginning, like Christ. And This is why worship is a privilege first, and then a right. It was a privilege that could be taken away from his people but it becomes an irrevocable right because of one person although in Christ you now have the right to worship don't allow that to eclipse the reality that it was a privilege until that very moment and when you start to lose sight of that truth this is where the sufficiency of scripture it is made evident to all scripture the bible It is the sufficient contract, the covenant, the wedding vows of God. It's God telling us and reminding us time and time again that he has already chosen to speak to us and that he will continue to speak to us today. In other words, it's a reminder that in Christ, you have the ability right now to choose to worship him. Brothers and sisters, our worship, it becomes a constant reminder that we don't need to change our God. Instead, our worship is a reminder and assurance. God will change you and me to be fit to worship him. Let's pray.